Hello, you're listening to From the Bibliophiles, a science podcast discussing how storytelling succeeds in communicating difficult science concepts. I'm your host and interviewer, Kenna Castleberry. If you're a new listener, you can find our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and many other places. Be sure to give us a five-star review if you like our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, like it and share it with your friends. This episode features an exclusive interview with Deborah Blum, director of the Knight Science Journalism Program at MIT. Deborah is a best-selling author as well, and in this interview, we discuss her popular nonfiction read, The Poisoner's Handbook. This book covers the Prohibition era in New York City and how two men were able to discover methods of poison detection that modern toxicologists still use today. Listen now. Good morning. Good morning, Kenna. How are you? I'm good. How about yourself? Good. I'm glad we pulled this off after all. I'm sorry. <laughs> it has been nuts. And it's Aww. funny because I was uh, just on the phone with uh, someone in my literary agency. And she said, I, and she was looking for an email I had sent last week, and she said, my email basket has gone insane. And I thought, you know, that is exactly one of my problems is I never talk to anyone, and I never just sit down and chat, so everyone <laughs> emails. So it's just like digitally nuts here. I hope you're doing well. Uh, I am. I tend to manage my emails pretty well, but I completely understand. I think with everyone home, it's so much easier to just send out a mass amount of emails and, and you know, consider your work being done that way as opposed to chatting in person. It is, or, you know, it's anyway, I like every day I say, and today I will get my inbox down under a thousand and every Ooh. day. I haven't, but... I completely get that. I'm working on it. Well, good. I I am happy to do this and honored that you want to talk about the book. Of course. We'll kind of go with the whole poison theme, which is great. (laughs) Yes, I love poison. Oh, yeah. No, same, same. I wanted to be a toxicologist for a while, and one of the reasons for that was actually reading Poisoner's Handbook, but I have clearly changed direction. So... Well, obviously, I'm not a toxicologist. I <laughs> love poisons and, and all the fascination of toxicology without being one. So Fair enough. So I'm, ask anything. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, just kind of starting off, how did you get into, you know, enjoying writing about poison or researching it? That's a good question. So uh, I am a failed chemistry major, um, and, and I love chemistry, even though I was a complete klutz and a disaster in the lab and was forced to save my life by changing majors. But I grew up in a house of science. My father was an entomologist and chemical ecologist. And so I grew up really being fascinated with, with chemistry as a sort of fundamentally important science, fundamental, beautiful, sinister, all the things that, that make it truly fascinating. And I had, as a science writer, always, although I did not write about chemistry for quite some time, I was a, you know, a science writer who explored all kinds of different things, but I had in the back of my mind that at some point I wanted to write a book in which poisons were characters. So I had this idea about writing a book, I mean, I'm a nonfiction writer, but yet in which chemical, in which poisons were actual 
characters in the book because I think of them that way, right? They're clever and devious in the way that they attack the body. And I, and I kind of admire and I'm fascinated by that. And so on and off over the years, I would talk to my book agent and I would say, uh, you know, I really want to do this book. And she was always like, yeah, yeah, whatever, chemistry. But finally, I think she, I think she almost literally said to me, okay, okay, right? Why don't you do that book you've been talking about forever? For let's get it over with. And so I like immediately pitched a book about poisons to my editor at Penguin Press, and she bought it, and off we went. Wow, that sounds fabulous. I love it. So how did you find most of the information for your cases for Poisoner's Handbook? Because you do have quite a few, and of course, we follow some main characters throughout the book. But I'm just curious, as far as your research process, was it a lot of work, or did you just find kind of whatever fascinated you? It was a lot of work, and I don't, and every book is different, the way you do the research and the way you start the story. This one had the most unusual, because, and it kind of follows from what I said earlier, but I, so I, my agent said to me, yeah, 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 okay, get that book out of your system. She said, but don't write a detailed proposal. Normally, a nonfiction writer like me writes about a 30 to 40 page, you know, proposal outlining the book and what you think it's going to be in your chapter outline. And my agent said to me, don't write a proposal. Just write a two or three page letter to your editor and make it delicious. <laughs> I thought, okay, that will be an interesting challenge to sell a book based on two to three pages, right? And so I wrote this letter to my editor in which I, I had, you know, pulled together some books about poisons that I ran down to the library, got a bunch of books about poisons, uh, and wrote this letter to my editor, which was really just a letter saying, you know, I'm not planning to murder my husband, but if I'm going to, this is how I would do it. <laughs> and here's why I think poison is such a great weapon, and you know, kind of like that. So she bought it, right? It was, mm -hmm. it was a brilliant letter. My, after I sold the book, my husband literally said to me, and when I die, everyone's going to know you did it. <laughs> I love it. It was ridiculous. But so I sold the book and spent the, you know, they give you an advance against royalties to cover your costs and whatever. And uh, I spent the advance. And then I thought to myself, what in the world is this book about? You know, I'm really not planning to poison my husband. And so that's not going to work as a narrative device. And so... So I ended up spending, I don't recommend this, but I ended up spending about the next three months doing a ton of research in a panic because I had signed the contract and the clock was ticking on the due date on the book and I didn't know what the book was about. And so I was like looking at every possible polling books from the university library. I was then at the University of Wisconsin, going through archives, different forensics, you know, science societies. And I found in the newsletter, one of the newsletters of the uh, Society of Forensic Toxicology, a reference to Alexander Gettler, who's one of the heroes of my book, being the father of American forensic toxicology. And I thought, okay, I'll just get a, a biography of him, but there wasn't one. And so, but the more I looked at him, and as I looked at him, I discovered his boss, Charles Norris, who was the first chief medical examiner 
of New York City, and the two of them together in the Ark of Poisoner's Handbook, starting about 1918, are on this mission to try to figure out how to catch a killer. And and in the course of the book, you know, as you say, I, I cover a lot of murder cases and, and and poisons as occupational hazards as well during the uh, 1920s and 1930s. And so I ended up doing this. I realized I was going to focus the book there. I ended up, you know, hunting down some people who knew Gettler. I discovered that the New York City had archived uh, the letters of the medical examiner's office from 1918 to 1935. So I went to New York, read every single letter published, right, during that 18 years or 17 years. And then I did a lot of, you know, I looked at a lot of journals of the time. I read every paper Alexander Gettler had ever published on poisons ranging from thallium to cyanide. And I also then went through newspapers. I was looking for contemporary sources. So I looked at the archives of the New York City newspapers, national newspapers, magazines of the time. And so there, almost all of it is sort of contemporary sources. I, I bought and I still have toxicology textbooks from the uh, 1920s. In fact, I still have a couple of those. And, and so you're putting this all together as a mosaic, and it's and you realize that in telling a narrative story, especially the kind of one I wanted to tell, where I wanted to put people right in the moment, right? I mean, they I really wanted them to be in the 20s and be in the 30s. Then you also have to do a lot of research, just you know, giving people a feel for what it was like, and you know what streets were like, and what cars were like, and you know, some of the, the sort of cocktail chatter background and the personalities of the people involved. So it's a ton of work. I was probably, I want to say, four to six months late turning in that book, partly because I got a delayed start. But a good year, year and a half, I did nothing but gather research for the book. That's wow. I'm very impressed. But it clearly shows off in the book, you know, as you say, you go through and try to catch a killer, which I thought was great. And I'm curious, too, since, you know, it is set with Gettler and Norris, and those are kind of your main characters, did you think about in your research that you would have to use prohibition, in a sense, to show the, you know, the increased use of poisons? Or, or did prohibition ever, you know, seem important to you in that sense of trying to explain what was going on? You know, that's a really good question, um, because although, you know, in a general sense, I'm like, hey, it's the 1920s, of course it's prohibition, I did not realize until I did the research, and, and this was partly from, as I said, you know, it was from reading the letters from the medical examiner's office. I mean, it was not just letters, but it was also memos and internal communications, right, but the documents. And it was partly from looking at the newspapers of the time that I started to realize that that was a major backdrop of the story because as you see the rise of prohibition, you see the rise of really toxic substances floating into everyone's daily life. I'm thinking particularly of methyl alcohol or wood alcohol, right. Right, which was one of the big substitutes. And, and, and other things, uh, you know, some of the other prohibition uh, substitutes, ginger jake, right, for Jamaican ginger, mm -hmm. 
neurotoxic or, uh, you know, just some of the crazy things people drank when they couldn't find anything else. But particularly methyl alcohol, and I and that I started realizing early. I was seeing, uh, when I was in New York City, I was seeing these memos from Gettler to Norris going, we've got a real problem coming, right? Mm-hmm. And, Gettler starts writing these articles warning about, in 1918, before things really happened, warning about what alcohol and how dangerous it is. And then later, of course, and, and one of the, my big discoveries is that I found this Charles Norris essay that he wrote for a national magazine called our, called our National, our national, I want to say essay, I think it's our national essay mm-hmm. in extermination. And I thought, what in the world is he talking about? And that was what led me to also realize that the U.S. government had enhanced the poisonousness of alcohol as a way to try to stop people from drinking. And and I think that was a big shock to me and just about everyone who read that part of the book. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. I When I first saw it, I'm like, that can't be true, right? And so there I really had to do a lot of contemporary magazine and newspaper work until I found all the stories about it, right? Yeah, so yeah, I didn't expect it, I, you know, In the but you'll see there's two, you know, there's a number of alcohol uh, chapters in the book, and that's really because of that. Gotcha, that makes sense. So switching over to Poison Squad, your more recent book, I'm curious, because this is a similar time period that you're looking at, just a different area, so did you find that Poisoner's Handbook really led into writing this book where you had all these notes and all these details and said, okay, I want to kind of expand on the story a little bit more? Yes, but maybe not as you know cleverly as you just put it. But when I started thinking, oh, I want to do another book, my editor at uh, Penguin said to me, and I want it to be related to Poisoner's Handbook. And so I, I was kind of spent the way you do as a writer looking at different stories. I look at some other true crime stories, none of which really worked for me, although in the course of doing that, I wrote a Kindle single about a New York serial killer, Albert Fish, called Angel Killer. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Yes. And uh, I still get royalties. I mean, there's a lot of people who... Albert Fish is a notorious serial killer. He is, yeah. So, you know, there were a lot of people who were interested in that story. But what I ended up kind of pursuing was I got interested in the title of Harvey Washington Wiley's public health. It was really a public health experiment, but his experiments with food additives where he's testing them on young human volunteers, uh, which was nicknamed the Poison Squad by the Washington Post. And and I thought, well, that's an interesting name for someone like me who's interested in poisons. What was it? And so when I went and took a look at that, I thought, that is really interesting. And and this really will tell you something of the way I decide on a book. And I thought, why would anyone get to the point? Why would a scientist, you know, a federal chemist, feel so desperate that the experiment he decides to do is one that he in which he you know tests potentially toxic things on his co-workers what why what would bring you to that point and once i got into that then i started unpeeling this great backstory of what unregulated food was really like right and i realized that i had bought into the mythology that i think many of us have cherished of this you know happy, farm-fresh, 
pre-industrial food kind of life where everyone's just eating nothing but good stuff, which turned out to be, you know, insanely not true. Mm -hmm. And so in general, when I'm doing a narrative book, and this is true of both of those books, you know, I'll, I, I want a character, a strong character or characters, you know, who are, are sort of the narratives behind what their crew's particular crusade, uh, who are the narrative spine of the story. I'm going to tell their story, but that, but the story behind that story, right, how do we catch a killer, how do we make food safe, it is the reason that I get interested in their story. And, and I've realized, too, and this is true for both those books again, you know that I I like really complicated people because uh, they actually do change a conversation and change the world. And so Wiley, even more so, you know, is a really complicated, stubborn, you know, crusader of a guy. And I, and so he makes a fascinating kind of way for me to explore those issues, but also explore the you know the idea of the kind of person who does change the world. Sure, absolutely. No, that's fabulous. So my last question for you, and then I'll let you go, and this might be a difficult one for you to answer, but is there a particular poison that you've enjoyed researching more than the other ones, or do you have a favorite that you've looked at? Actually, that one is uh, an easy one for me. It's arsenic. Um, oh. I love many poisons, <laughs> for different reasons, but I, I mean, arsenic is a great poison First, you know, until, because, first, it really was a great classic homicidal poison, right? Mm -hmm. It was tasteless, it was odorless, it mixed easily into food, it mimicked chronic illness. Back in the 19th century, when it was known as the inheritance powder, it was an ideal poison. It was also easy to get. And so, I love, I mean, to me, it, like, checks all the boxes of what makes a good homicidal poison and also what makes a poison it was really the first homicidal poison that scientists figured out how to detect in a corpse so it's a great example of the way science then ruins a good poison for those of us who are homicide i shouldn't laugh about that but but it's literally but it does strike me as kind of funny but science ruins a good homicidal poison for those who are homicidally minded because now you can catch it and so once once you saw chemists figuring out in the 19th century that they could detect metalloid poisons like or you know metal metallic poisons like arsenic or uh, antimony and and some of the similar poisons then you see poisoners shift over to plant poisons until science ruins that too right and you can detect alkaline alkaloids in the body but but arsenic sort of checks all of those boxes you know a once perfect poison the role of science in making that not so and you know it, it has two other things it, it weaves through human history in, in all kinds of ways so you know you can go back to stories like the borgias and some of the early other you know sort of murderous families of our time or even early serial killers poison serial killers and you find arsenic and finally uh it's also a really important environmental poison and and that's fascinating to me i mean it's a naturally occurring element it's the 33rd i think most common element in the earth's crust it contaminates plants it contaminates drinking water it underlies you know, in ways that we don't fully understand a lot of chronic human illnesses. 
and it's toxic at a low dose level in this part per million, part per billion level. It's me the mechanisms are very different than they are once you get to the acute level, and so that's fascinating too. It's just really a fascinating poison in the way it works, in the way it weaves through history, in the dance between you know science and human behavior. It, it, you know. There's other great poisons, but this one to me, it stands out from all of them.